page 1168. In this chapter we have holiness or sanctification commanded. We have the Corinthians' proper response to discipline and Paul's comfort that he received from their response to his prior letter. Hear now the reading of the word of Almighty God, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak this, I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and to live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. When he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, yet I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season." Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, What carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, Even so, our boasting, which I made before Titus, is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundantly abundant toward you, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling ye received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Thus far the reading of the word of Almighty God from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Here in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 7, we have an exhortation to progressive holiness. 
and a due regard for the ministers of the gospel. Notice verse 1, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Now this verb, having the promises, is a participle. It describes in what manner the next verb or the nearest verb that it refers to is a reference. How am I to cleanse myself? Well, this is how. By having these promises. By holding fast to these promises. This is how we cleanse ourselves. How do you purify yourself? By taking heed thereto according to thy law. Remember what God has stated in his promises. Now, if you recall from the end of chapter 6, he talked about these promises in the light of the temple of God and the temple of idols. They have nothing in common, no part together, no worship together, different gods, different hope, different faith. He says, separate yourselves from the unclean. And then he says, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Those are the promises that we hold fast in order to purify ourselves. The gospel provides the basis for the law. By faith, Paul said in Romans 3.31, we establish the law. We don't abrogate it. The promise leads to the precept, the gospel to the law, the doctrine to the duty. This is what God teaches all throughout the Bible. As we hold fast to the promise, therefore we cleanse ourselves from every contamination in the spirit and in the flesh. Perfecting holiness, he says, in the fear of God. Oh, but you see, The promise of God and the fear of God are opposites, we're told. No, the promise of God and the fear of man are opposites, as we saw from Deuteronomy 3. The fear of God is the fulfillment of the promise of God. The obedience to his commandments is what grows out of the gospel. If we see them as opposites... The law of God, the fear of God as the opposite of the promise of God, then we're confusing the doctrine of justification with the entire Christian life. We're saying that our salvation solely consists in our justification before God. But does the Bible teach that? No. Here we have the doctrine of sanctification. He says, press on, holding fast to the promise to cleanse yourself, to perfect holiness in the fear of Almighty God. So you see then, Christian faith and sanctification are not contrary to the fear of God. The gospel is not contrary to the law in the regard of our sanctification. The promise encourages us in the precepts and in holiness. Let us then cleanse ourselves from all defilements in our bodies, that is, your mouth, your tongue, the things you say, the things you do with your hands, the places you walk, the things you look at with your eyes, the habits you have concerning your duties to God and your neighbor and what you do with your body. Those are defilements of the body when we do not do as God has commanded. What are the defilements of spirit? The thoughts, the motives, the doctrines we believe, the inner workings of our affections, the things that man cannot see. 
These are defilements of spirit when not according to God's commandments. They are defiling. We must know ourselves if we are to cleanse ourselves. We must examine ourselves. What are the defilements of my body? How do I use it in a way that's not pleasing to God, that is not holy unto him, that is not according to his law, that is not in the fear of God? We must then, in examination of ourselves, see what is good that the Lord has blessed us with and continue in it, confirm ourselves in it, and those things that are evil, cleanse and repent and turn from them. Then verse 2, the apostle, after giving this strong and powerful exhortation, tells them how they ought to receive us. Not just Paul the apostle, but those apostolic men such as Timothy and Titus, those who ministered with him. Don't receive the false apostles who are like angels of light, he'll tell us later in this epistle, but they're actually satanic. They wrong you. They corrupt you. They defraud you. And we have done no such thing, he says. Therefore, receive us. Now, what you need to understand about Satan and all of his minions is that one word for Satan is diabolos. Dia means across or all the way through something. And balo is like a ball. You throw it. So the diabolos, what does he do? He throws something across someone. Literally, he makes accusations. He makes false accusations or perhaps true accusations, as in the case of Judas Iscariot. The devil moved him to despair by bringing his faults before him. And he regretted his faults, but he did not repent of them. So a diabolos, he comes along and accuses others of things that he himself is guilty of. The communists have a little book called Rules for Radicals. One of the rules is that whenever you find a fault in yourself, accuse your adversary of it. Say that he's the one who's got the problem. It's actually your problem. But say that he has it so that he has to defend himself and then he looks immediately guilty because he's defending himself and you win. That's what Satan does. Paul is a false apostle. Paul has wronged you. Paul has defrauded and corrupted you people. Who is actually defrauding and corrupting them? Well, the accusers were. So he's saying, receive us. They have defrauded you. They are the angels of light. Hear what we're telling you. These leftists must not be heard. Verse 4, I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. They had repented in a godly manner. They took care of their pride and their being puffed up, which brings us to verses 5 through 11. Paul's comfort regarding their handling of the discipline case, and he heard about it from Titus. Verse 6, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus. Do we always need direct comfort from God? Sometimes he chooses not to do that. Here he used someone else. God sent Titus to comfort him. This is why we need the church. God has determined that we need one another to build us up in holiness and in love and to show us that we are in fact weak. 
There was consolation wherewith he was comforted in them. This is a Hebrewism. The word consolation and comforted are the same verb in the Greek New Testament. He's emphasizing that he was thoroughly, extremely, and totally comforted and strengthened concerning them. He heard of their earnest desire, verse 7, their mourning, their fervent mind toward him. Do you remember how he told them their bowels were straightened? And to enlarge them, here he's saying, I saw the beginnings of that. I saw that you were attached to me. You had fervency. You boiled up in your spirits toward me. They mourned their false toleration. They boiled up with zeal for Paul and his doctrine, so that I rejoiced the more, he says. My joy continued to increase as your love for me continued to increase, he says. Let us then rejoice in the things of God as Paul rejoiced. When those who have been trapped in a sin, either of false toleration or some other evil, some other contamination of spirit, when they're led by God to repentance, the angels rejoice in heaven. Should we not rejoice in such things? What are the things that we rejoice in? What are our priorities? What matters to us? That's what we rejoice in. Now he says, verse 9, I rejoice not that she were made sorry, but that she sorrowed to repentance. Westminster annotations say, as a good physician rejoiceth not in that he hath ministered to his patient a bitter poison, but that thereby he hath procured him much ease. Yes, you must take a medicine that is like disgusting, but it produces some good effect. And so Paul says, I was glad, not that you had to take the bitter pill, but rather that you repented, that you turned from that sin. Unmasked or unhypocritical love rejoices in the genuine good of others, not in their surface, their temporal or their emotional good, but in their enduring and everlasting good. That's true love. Love that wears a mask says, I want you to feel good. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. But when that is prioritized over the actual good, they mourned, they repented, they were saved from their sin. That was the actual good. If he had said, well, I can't say this because that group will be offended and I probably shouldn't touch on this point because these people will be upset. And after all, they've decided that the doctrine of grace means that we should tolerate incest because after all, that's Leviticus 18. I'm not bound by the law. That is a false, a pretended, a surface, a temporal or an emotional love, not true love, not enduring and everlasting good. Let us truly love one another. Let us rejoice in our own and in others' repentance, though it may cost some temporary sorrow to those that we love. That is true love. Verse 9, ye were made sorry after a godly manner. Literally, he says, they sorrowed according to God. And what is this sorrow according to God? Well, first... What does God say you should sorrow for? That's the first thing. What does his law say? What is the end of sorrow according to God? 
Well, it's repentance and salvation. It's turning from your sins. It's new obedience. It's forgiveness through Christ. And also, sorrowing according to God is for the glory of God. I have put a blot on his glory by my sin. And therefore, I sorrow that God's glory has not shined forth in my life. Godly sorrow, he says in verse 10, worketh repentance. Or that sorrow, according to God, worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Again, our sorrows or our joys or our fears are to be governed by God and what he says, not what we feel necessarily. Let us properly use our affections. Let us have a sorrow that leads us to repentance, a joy that leads us to singing God's praise in the Psalms or giving of thanks with prayer, a gratitude that leads to holiness, a loyalty that leads to obedience. God says, your affections were created by me. It's part of who you are as a human. Now direct them toward the objects that I say in the way that I say for the reasons that I say. Oh, but these are my feelings. I'm just honest with my feelings. No, you're governed by your feelings. When people say that sort of thing, they're being ruled by how they feel rather than by God himself. This is the sorrow of the world in verse 10. What does it produce? Death. It is not a sorrow according to God. A sorrow from mere worldly considerations. No hope of forgiveness in Christ according to the standards of men, for the glory of the self-righteous person, for the betterment of their own life and condition, usually because some misery is inflicted upon them and they sorrow to try to get rid of the misery, not the sin, not the stain on God's name, not with consideration of forgiveness through Christ. You see how this produces death, don't you? Sorrow, according to the world, has no hope of eternal life. It does no good for the person rather than puff them up and make them prideful. Oh, look at me. I'm so sad. I'm mourning. Look at me. I'm taking a knee. Click, click. Take a picture of me. I'll put it on my Instagram. Oh, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd. Let me take a knee in sorrow for all the systematic racism. What does that produce? Death. No good. Only destruction doesn't lead anybody to repentance. Westminster Annotations, a sorrow merely for the loss of worldly things or which is only caused from the fear of God's judgments in unbelievers, whereupon there followeth commonly hardness of heart. It doesn't soften them. Their sorrow doesn't make them more pliable to God. It hardens their heart gives them a reprobate sense, and after despair and damnation itself. As we see in Cain, Saul, Ahithophel, Judas, and the like, which wasteth the body and hasteneth death. That's the worldly sorrow. You remember Cain? His sorrow was greater than he could bear. Did it produce life in him? No. Death. Let us then avoid worldly sorrow. Let us not sorrow merely for the loss of some good. Let us sorrow that we have offended God. 
Let us sorrow unto repentance, leading to salvation with our hope in Christ, in renewing our commitment to obey God, and because of his glory. Let us not sorrow with self-justification or self-seeking. Oh, poor me, I'm a victim. Then he gives us the attributes in verse 11 of true repentance. Carefulness, that is being diligent or earnestly striving after repentance. What else? Clearing of yourselves. This literally means offering a defense, answering point by point the accusation made against you. Their lives answered the accusations of God point by point. What did Paul say? They did it point by point. They cleared themselves. Indignation, a feeling or expression of strong opposition and displeasure, anger aroused by something thought to be wrong. We are wrong, they said. We must take care of this. We cannot tolerate this any longer. Yea, what fear. A holy dread of provoking the judgment of God upon the whole church by such an abominable sin committed and not punished. Yea, what vehement desire. This means to long after something because you lack it. We lack the presence of God, the order of Christ, the good of the offender. All these things we've lost with our false love. They vehemently desired, yea, what zeal! Their minds were excited with fervor of spirit. They pursued and went after it with all their might. Zeal. Yea, what revenge! King Jesus says, that action is lawless and wicked and leads to death. We say, it's okay, grace, 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 grace. They must avenge the statutes of the king. They must bring the justice of God down to to pay back the offender. Christ and his laws must be obeyed. In all things, he says, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. There it is the commendation of themselves. Their actions commended themselves to the Apostle Paul that they were obedient. They were not guilty any longer. They had taken care how God told them to. Let us then sorrow according to God. Let our repentance be diligent and universal. Let it answer point by point the Lord's indictment of us in his law. Let us let us. Fear God and have a holy, vehement desire that God would fill in what lacks in us. Let us dread his judgments and his punishments. Let us reverence his name and his laws. Let us move to this repentance with zeal and desire for the justice of Christ Jesus to be done and thus to recommend our repentance to God Almighty. The apostle then comforts the Corinthians who were well affected by this admonition. He says that his spirit, when Titus went to the Corinthians, was refreshed by you all. Now, refreshing there means when you lie down and you can finally rest. You don't have to work. You're not agitated. You're not busied with anything. You can sit down and take a nap, you might say. His spirit was working overtime before he went to the Corinthians. He was agitated 
constantly in motion, but now he could rest in his spirit. When he went to them, when Titus went to the Corinthians, they were in fear and trembling. They were reverential and respectful. Now, when a person is repentant, that's the proper posture, isn't it? I'm afraid that I will be judged by God. That's the idea. And so they were honoring and trembling when Titus came. Did we do this right? Is this pleasing to God? Have I done what God wanted me to do? Paul then rejoiced in this posture of humility and repentance. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you all. Here the the superior commends his inferiors. He recognizes, yes, they had done wrong. Yes, they had displeased God, but now they have come to repentance and I need to encourage that repentance. And so he does as an example to all in authority. Thus far, the reading and explanation of the word of Almighty God from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7.